I'm excited about this week's message. It's a little bit of a difficult one. Obviously, uh, you can see by the sermon title, this isn't one uh, we wanted to put out on the marquee there uh, this morning. Uh, But it's a vital one uh, looking and living in the times of our culture today. So we're going to continue in our study word by word, line by line through the Gospel of John. We're in John 15 verses 18 through 21 and 27, excuse me. Uh, And we want to read this section of scripture as we prepare to hear this sermon, Hated by the World. So if you found your place in John 15, verse 18, would you join me for the honor of reading, uh, for standing to read God's word uh, as we are acknowledging that this is God speaking to us, his people. Can you just sit back and think about what a wonderful thing that is? That the God of the universe, the God that spoke the universe into existence would speak, would even dare speak to us sinful people? What a joy it is to have his word this morning. John chapter 15, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and this is what he says. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father. He will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from The beginning. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do consider ourselves very grateful and thankful that you've chosen to speak to us, that you've given us in your word all things we need pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need to live the Christian life in a way that you desire is given to us in your word. And everything uh, we need to pursue godliness is given Uh, to us in your word. So Father, it is sufficient. What we have here and what we've read here this morning is difficult as it may be throughout the service to process the purpose of some of these things. Lord, it's sufficient to work your will in us. We submit to its authority. We thank you for the gift of it. Lord, I pray for every soul here. If someone is here that belongs to this world system that Jesus was talking about, that Lord, that today would be the day they turned from an enemy to a friend. Lord, for those of us who are friends of God, who are your children, Lord, we pray that we would have direct insight into why this world system opposes you and, Lord, how we can guard against um, sin in such way. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Well, you remember, if, uh, we've been, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John, but uh, hopefully you remember that up to this point, Jesus has actually been speaking about his love for his disciples, and then he's been speaking about the love they ought to, because of his love, have uh, for one another. So now, all of a sudden, he, he contrasts a whole bunch of, of sayings of love and the love they should have for one another with the hatred they will receive from the world. He's been talking about love, and now he moves to a subject of of hatred. The hate of the world toward God and his people. He also begins to change the focus from the details about his coming departure to discussing what life is going to be like now that he goes to be with the Father. He's preparing them for what they're going to experience after he departs from this earth. He wants them to understand in no uncertain terms that they are going to travel a road of bitter persecution and hatred. And Jesus is telling them these things so that they won't be surprised when it starts to happen. He's warning them. In fact, they've already gotten a slight taste of it to this point already, but it's already going to come with a full court press when Jesus leaves this earth. Let me ask you, fellow Christians, are are you ever surprised by the degree of hatred that this world has towards Jesus and his followers? You know, we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, you know, the, the same John who wrote the gospel we've been studying, he, he wrote this in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. He says, don't be surprised. See, this hatred that the world has for Jesus and for his disciples, it's nothing new. It's certainly nothing to be surprised at, and it's simply the way things have been since the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, and they will continue to be that way even until the end of the age. Friends, this is our path. So so we shouldn't think it's strange when we hear about others being persecuted or when we ourselves are persecuted for clinging to Jesus. So we need to pay close attention to the instruction that Jesus provides us from there. I thought about adding some illustrations about the world's hatred for for Jesus. And and I I think I I don't need to do that. I think, uh, first of all, it seems often Western of us to think that our persecution of insults is actual persecution. uh, When when many are are dying for the faith. But I think that's actually, in somewhat of a degree, a mark on us. Because I think in Western society, more than any other society, we desire to be like the world. We've, we've failed the prosperity test. See, in Western society, we've been blessed with many gifts and many graces and, and many what, what is actually blessings, but we've taken so advantage of those blessings and found them to be our God that we think if we lose uh, uh, Twitter followers or Facebook friends that we're being persecuted for the gospel's sake. Friends, that, that's not the case. And yet, Jesus is clear, if you follow him It ought to cost you something. And I'm afraid in the American church today, the the fact of the matter is, it really has cost us nothing to follow Jesus. And I think if that's the truth, I got to at least ask myself, as I have this week, if it's really cost me nothing to follow Jesus, 
Is that because of the culture? Or is it because of me refusing to take a stand for Jesus when I've had an opportunity? That's where I want us to live today. I want us to do this. I want us to doctrinally, I want us to have an understanding of why the world, the world system hates Jesus. I want us to know that that's the case. And I want us to know why that's the case. So that we won't be surprised when it comes. We won't be surprised when we hear. But then I want us to give us some practical application and some challenges because a lot of this, if we talk about the world's hatred for, for, for Jesus and his people, you may not be experiencing any of this. And if that's the case, I've got to wonder, where, where have you taken a stand in Christianity? Have there been opportunities in your life where you may have had a, an opportunity to stand for Jesus, but you chose to be accepted and liked by the world? I wonder if that's the case for you. So that's our goal this morning. And in verses 18 through 25, what we see is we're given three reasons as to why the world hates Jesus and his followers. So let's build this doctrine first, and then we'll get to some practical application that hopefully be encouragement to us at the end of the service. And the, the first reason we will consider uh, on why the world hates Jesus and his followers is this. The world hates Jesus and his followers because we are not of the world. We are not of the world. Friends, we don't belong here. I, I was listening, Amy and I were driving back from, from Georgia yesterday uh, on, a, on a trip, and I was listening to one of my favorite albums, Beautiful Letdown by, by Switchfoot, and I remember this song, Beautiful Letdown, and, and uh, John, uh, uh, the, John Foreman uh, was just repeating over and over again this, I, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. <laughs> and I, I love that we don't belong here. Because, because this world, if we belonged here, if this was our home, if this was our hope, friends, we'd, we'd have a lot of reason for despair, wouldn't we? But we are citizens of heaven. And so the first reason why the world hates us is because we're not of the world. Look at verse 19 with me. John 15, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. <laughs> But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Now, I want us to understand before we dive in here that the, the word world that John uses here, he's not implying that every single person on this planet has the same degree of hatred towards Jesus and his followers. That's not his point. Rather, the reference is, is to the, when he says the word world, he's referring to the world system. The world system itself that we live in, it hates believers because they're not a part of the world system. See, friends, the world is okay with us so long as we're in their system. So long as we're living like them, as we're talking like them, and the, like the rest of the world, everything is well. But the moment someone comes to Christ, and I mean really comes to Christ, and is taken out of darkness and transferred into the marvelous kingdom of light, it's then that the hatred begins. It's then that the Christian finds himself on the other side of the tracks. Peter describes this very well in 1 Peter 4, where Brother Judd read for us, where he says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. 
For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a, a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they, the world, they are what? They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. See, that's the case. If you belong to Christ, you've been plucked from the world. You've been chosen by God and taken out of the city of men and have been made a citizen of his glorious city in heaven. Amen. And as a result, in the eyes of the world, you're now considered a traitor. They're determined to remind us that we are no longer welcome in their city so long as we are unwilling to conform to their ways. And, and so this hatred stems from the fact that we're no longer of the world. That's the root. We're citizens of a different kingdom in heaven. Yes, we live in this world, and, but as we're told in the scriptures, we are not of the world. We're just passing through. We're pilgrims on our way to that city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And, and folks, since we don't fit in here, if you're truly a child of Christ, since we don't fit in in this world, we shouldn't try to. And surely you remember the old Sesame Street show where that song would, would come on and say something like, one of these things is not like the other, right? How obvious is it, even to little children, to recognize that things aren't similar to one another, they don't belong together? It should be that obvious to those in the world that we don't belong to the city of men, but we're citizens of the city of God. Amen. Now, unfortunately, too many Christians aren't so different from the world as we've said. In fact, some actually go out of their own way to have more in common with the world in order to make Christianity to be less strange and more attractive or palatable to an unbelieving world. We can even see this in certain churches where the worship services look more like a concert or theatrical show than it does a worship service. But again, we're not like the world. We're not supposed to try and be like it. In fact, the world ought to think that we are strange because we're so very different. By living a simple Christian life, you will not fit in with many people you see every day. And again, listen to me. That's okay. Uh, don't let that trouble you. In fact, let it encourage you. You belong to Christ. That's a marvelous thing, and it's far better to belong to Christ than be accepted by the world. The world system is a terrible God, by the way. Did you notice that? You will never be able to please the world system that we're in. Especially in a day today where there's postmodern society where truth is completely subjective. Nothing you will ever do will ultimately ever please men of this world. Somebody will find something to gripe about in some way. But here's a beautiful thing about belonging to Christ. When you belong to Christ, when you're identified as unified with the one Christ, God doesn't hold you to your own standard anymore. Your faith is tied to Christ, and he holds you to the standard of Christ, and Christ is the ultimate standard. He always wins. We're on the winning team. And because
because we belong to Christ now, when God sees us, he doesn't see us just in our own sinfulness, helpless. He sees us tied to his son. Because we're tied to him in faith, he looks at us and he sees the righteousness and perfection of Christ. Because we've been given his righteousness by faith. Friends, the world system that you're in will never accept you or love you or care for you in any way, shape, or form. Especially to the degree that God loves you and cares for you. There's just no comparison. So that's the first reason why the world hates Jesus and his followers. Because we don't belong here. We ought not to try. Second reason the world hates Jesus and his followers is this. We're united to Jesus and we identify with him. We are united to Jesus and we are identified with him as we've said. Look at verse 20 of our text here. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you kept my word, they will keep yours also. Second reason the world hates Jesus and his followers is because we are united to Christ. And we are identified with him. See, we as a people of God, we're so united to Christ that whatever reasons the world has for hating Jesus, it has for hating us. And here's why. is because Jesus spoke the truth about man's condition. Jesus didn't pull any punches when he was speaking about the state of man. Likewise, the very same gospel that's been entrusted to us as his followers to preach to the nations claims the same truth about man's sinful condition. And guess how the world feels about that? The world doesn't like to hear that they're sinful. They don't like to hear the truth about their condition. In fact, people are quick to want uh, to hear just how messed, aren't quick to want to hear just how messed up their lives actually are. Even if it's followed with a word of hope and a gospel message. So when we share the truth with unbelievers, they're going to be confronted with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And a good look at Jesus results in one of two things ultimately. You will either abide in his love or you'll abide in your own hatred. You either have abiding love for Christ that he's given you or abided hatred that your flesh gives. That's what everybody is confronted with every time they're confronted with Jesus. You're going to either become somebody who abides in his love or abides in your hatred towards him. That hatred of love towards Jesus also then extends to his disciples, those who are sharing his message. But, But you know what's interesting to note? Is how the world is able to discern between those who are truly Christians and sharing the true gospel and those who are imposters. See, the world system we're in, it it gets along pretty well with imposters. Those who are peddling a false gospel. The world's okay with somebody who just wants to be a moralist. But friends, we need to remember as a people of God that Jesus tells us that moralism isn't what Christianity is all about. Christ tells us that our good works before his eyes are filthy rags apart from Jesus Christ. Christ tells the truth about who we are and what we absolutely truly need. He reveals to us our sinful condition of our souls and he offers us the free gift of his grace with no strings attached. And that sort of gospel message is offensive. See friends, unbelievers can tolerate Jesus so long as he's stripped of his real identity. 
They'll tolerate a false Jesus. But if, but if Jesus' true followers claim the real Christ, the Christ of the scriptures, it's then that the hatred of the world comes to bear. See, the sad reality is that the, the Jesus that many people believe in today is a, is a Jesus that everybody can like. He's a non-offensive Jesus. And he's been shaped into the image of man's imagination. Who doesn't like a Santa Claus figure in their minds? A genie who's there to grant your wishes when you're upset. <laughs> Somebody who's just going to be jolly and nice to you, give you whatever you want. Who's not going to impact any way that you live. Anybody can make their own version up of Jesus and feel right at home in the world system. Never suffering an ounce of persecution. However, friends, if we're serving and, and teaching and preaching the true Christ... The true Jesus, as he is disclosed to us in his word, there can be no doubt that we will not be welcomed by the world with open arms. The Apostle Paul describes the difference in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He says this, he said, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those things who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life. You see, see friends, your life has a stench about it. And I'm not talking just to those of you who didn't shower this morning, right? Uh, your, your life has an aroma about it. If you belong to Jesus, then you are so united to him that there is even a sense in which you smell like Jesus. People can tell that you are a Christian. Now listen, that aroma that you carry, it's a wonderful fragrance to those whom Christ is drawing to himself or is already drawn to himself. For those coming to Christ or those who are already in Christ, when they come across other Christians and when they hear the gospel message, it's as if we come into the presence of our favorite smelling perfume or cologne. My favorite smelling perfume or cologne is popcorn. Uh, I can tell you, I can eat three steaks at dinner, all the fixings, be stuffed as possible. If I walk into a movie theater and I smell popcorn... That aroma is just so precious to me that I must, must, must have it. And then $30 later, I'm in debt, right? Uh, no. But that's the case. To those who are Christians, you smell wonderful. Your aroma, your, your spirit about you, it, it just permeates Christ and they love it or they're intrigued by it. They find it interesting. But friends... That's not always the case. Because at the same time, that, that same fragrance also carries with it the stench of death. It, it all depends on the spiritual condition of the one smelling the fragrance. To those who are perishing, it's the stench of death. And the world doesn't like to, to think about death. Much less to have to smell it. And so, the second reason that you're hated by the world is because you identify with Christ. You belong to him. You're united with him. If they hate Jesus, they'll hate you as well. The third reason why the world hates Jesus and us is this. It's because they don't know God. The third reason the world hates Jesus and us is that they don't 
know God. They're ignorant of him. Look at verses 21 through 25 of our text this morning. It says, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had done nothing, if I had done, uh, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. The reason the world hates Jesus and his followers is because they don't know God. Now listen, of course, many people think they know God. Right? They, they speak about God, they go to various places of worship, they call God by various names, but in the end, if they don't know the God of the scriptures as he's been revealed in Jesus Christ, then they really don't know God. In fact, there are millions of people in this world today who even call themselves Christians who are ignorant of the true God. People who, when they're asked by pollsters, are more than happy to say they believe in God, but who neither know God or walk in God's ways. People who are members of a church, but don't ever feel the need to go worship. Many of these people say they believe in God, but they don't. As one commentator, Gordon Ketty, puts it, he says... These people, they are formally theists. They're, they're formally, they, they said that they're believers. They believe in God, but they're practically atheist. Their God bears a vague resemblance of the God of the Bible, but in reality is not who the Father alone has seen in the face of Jesus Christ. A person who does not know the real Jesus does not know the real God, however traditionally biblical his language may be. His God is a fake a false deity of his own invention. Now, now listen, e even though I shared with us uh, three reasons why the world hates Jesus and his people, I think it's worth mentioning that if we ever find ourselves unable to figure out why the world is persecuting Christ and his church, we do well to realize that we don't need to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out the answer to that question. We're told here in this passage that the world hates Jesus without cause. They don't need a reason. Jesus was crucified not because he was guilty, because he wasn't. He was crucified because he was hated. At the end of the day, the world doesn't even have to have a reason to hate Jesus or his people. It's simply a matter of sinful nature. People are born into this world. They are conceived being born in sin, hating Jesus. That's how terrible the fall of man is. The effect, it affects us now, this very moment, even from the beginning. In fact, this is one of the most striking things about the world's hatred of Jesus and is an extension, their hatred of his followers. They don't have to have a reason to hate you. See, their hatred isn't based on reasoning or logic, at least not all the time. Their hatred is rooted in their sinful nature. It's rooted in their sin. Look at verses 26 through 27. We'll, we'll close quickly here. Because there's hope in the midst of this. Look at this in this final two verses. Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. I want you to understand something, church family. Uh, we will be persecuted if we follow Christ. 
we will be persecuted. Uh, it's, it's a sure thing. <laughs> Paul says in no uncertain terms in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We could just even use reasoning to say, okay, well then, if, if someone's not being persecuted, then that obviously would mean that they don't desire to live a godly life. And what do we know about a Christian? A Christian, at least in the ultimate sense, desires to live a godly life. So for the true believer, persecution isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You'll be persecuted at work, at school, in your neighborhood, in your families, in all kinds of other places and ways. The question is, when we're faced with persecution, what will we do? What will be our response? Because some people just can't deal with it. Some will wither away and eventually leave the faith because of persecution. And, and those who respond in this way, remember, they of course prove that they were never really of the faith to begin with. Because all who truly are in Christ will persevere to the end. But we're told in this passage that the Holy Spirit himself will be our help. One of the most powerful resources for the believer that we have in the midst of persecution and times of difficulty is the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. You remember we looked at that not too long ago, the paraclete. The Holy Spirit represents Jesus' presence in the believer and when the world strikes out against a believer, we know that in essence they are striking out in, to Christ in us. Remember the example of Saul before he was converted and became the Apostle Paul? He was violently persecuting all those who were following Jesus. He hated Jesus and he hated all of his disciples. That's why he persecuted them. And when he was on the road to Damascus, what happened? Jesus struck him down off his horse and blinded him. And do you recall what Jesus said to Saul? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting not them, not Christians, not my followers, not Christ's followers. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you understand the gravity of that? In Saul's attacks against Christ's followers, Jesus sees it as an attack against him. We are so united to Jesus that when someone persecutes one of us, it's the same thing as them attacking Jesus himself. And friends, that's bad news for them because Jesus is our uh, defender. He's our avenger. So they have trouble coming if they don't have the same experience Paul did and are converted by it. All of that to say that the, the day will come when the Lord will take his vengeance upon his and our enemies. The day is coming when every last enemy of God who has not turned to Jesus in grace and salvation will be held accountable for every evil thought and every evil deed committed against Jesus and one of his followers. Every one of them will be brought into subjection under him and they will be crushed by his wrath. They will be made to drink from the cup of woe and they'll be forced to drink every single drop of the bottomless cup of the wrath of God. But for us in Jesus, for us in Christ, Jesus has taken that cup for us. Every one of us at one point of our lives were enemies and haters of God just like the rest. But friends, because of his grace toward us, he took that cup and drank it on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, 
we, we need to be aware that there's never such a thing as cheap grace. Following Christ is costly. It will cost you something to follow Jesus. So, scenario, if persecution should arise in the United States of America, let me just ask you something. What are you going to do? I think it's safe to say that if it became illegal for Christians to gather for worship, many churches in our land would lose a great percentage of their membership. Many wouldn't even bother trying to gather in private meetings because to them, well, it wouldn't be worth the risk of going to prison. And, and friends, let me just be honest, the, the truth of that fact can be seen in the, the, the many who are not willing to go to church for all kinds of simple, easy reasons. But, but should Christianity ever become illegal, the question in my mind is whether or not there would be enough evidence against me for my arrest and for the verdict of being guilty as charged. Will there be enough evidence, if Christianity becomes illegal, to use against you to hold you guilty? We can only pray that it would by God's grace. See, friends, whether we recognize it or not, it's actually a blessing to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of Christ. It's a blessing and a gift. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29. I don't know if you've ever appreciated all the inheritances we receive from our Savior. But this is one we ought to hold dear. Philippians 1 says, For to you it's been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Matthew chapter 5, 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. <laughs> For your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You also recall one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles were commanded by the authorities to stop speaking the name of Jesus. Commanded to stop it. No longer say his name. But what did they do? They say we must obey God rather than men. And you know what happens in Acts 5? After being mercilessly beaten for disobeying the authorities, speaking about Jesus, we're told in this verse, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. As we conclude, I, I, I want to bring a couple of things for us to think of in light of what we hear so far. Because I... I want us to guard against a couple things here, okay? First, I, I want you to guard against self-righteousness. These aren't in your notes, but you can jot these down. I want you to guard against self-righteousness. The purpose of hearing about the hatred of the world and hearing about the enemies that persecute us is not so you can stand on a pedestal and say, look at all the terrible people around me. I'm glad I'm so great. Friends, if it were not for the grace of Christ Jesus, you'd be right there with him. In fact, you were born a hater of God. You were born an enemy of God. But God in his merciful grace changed your heart to believe in him and call you friend. We ought to guard against self-righteousness when it comes to understanding persecution in the world. It ought, it ought to cause us to have mercy and compassion on those who are enemies of God. Ought to cause us that, that when we're persecuted, we'd also pray for our persecutors. 
To understand, Father, the only difference between myself and this person is that you've shown me marvelous, matchless grace and have changed me and converted me. And I pray you do the same for them. We must guard against self-righteousness. Secondly, we must guard against self-victimization. This is a hard text to preach in our culture because let's be honest and let's face it, we, we love playing the victim today. You see that in our culture? And listen, we can also be self-righteous in this, right? Because we get mad at everybody else for playing the victim until we got an opportunity to play the victim. That's, that's not the case. You, listen, the goal in all of this is not that you go out looking for persecution. So you can say, oh, woe is me, look at me and how much I'm being persecuted for the sake of Christ. Here's the bottom line. What you need to do, friend, is you need to obey Jesus and walk in his ways and you won't have to go looking for opportunities to be persecuted. That's it. You, you just simply obey Christ. You seek to live for his glory and, and he, persecution will come. The third thing I'd like for us to guard against is, is bitterness. Bitterness towards enemies. And listen, friends, I, I, I watch the news. I, my heart is, is absolutely broken almost every time I do. And, and not only that, I'm, I'm struggling with bitterness every time I do. When I see a man take, take an assault rifle and go at people, including a, an infant, oh, I'm bitter and I'm angry. And yet I've got to remind myself that the tool I have for change is the gospel of Christ. That mankind's only hope is what I possess. And that the most effective thing I can do for my culture is preach the gospel and live it out and share it. See, this is hard for us because we know that, that God is going to be our, our, our justifier. He is going to be our defender. And so there's a part of us that wants us to be like, yeah, get what's coming to your world. But friends, that's not your role as a Christian. You are not the defender. You are not the justifier. You are the tool that God has used to share the gospel with people. We've been studying the book of Jonah in our Sunday school class and this theme has come up over and over again. Jonah hated the Assyrians because the Assyrians were a hateful people. They were haters of God. They were enemies of God. And we so often look at Jonah and say, man, that Jonah should have just obeyed God. But this was personal to Jonah. Jonah probably knew countrymen and kinsmen who, whose skins were shed off of their body, who, whose children were bloodily massacred and whose heads were hanging on the streets of Assyria. This was personal to him. And yet God chose Jonah, because of his great mercy, to go preach the gospel to the nation of Assyria so that many would be saved. And guess what? Many were. And you know what? The reason why Jonah didn't want to do it is because he knew God was going to be faithful. And friends, I think we can get this way as well. When we're being persecuted, when we see persecution, our brothers and sisters and across the ocean in different countries... We, we must trust that God will be the defender and avenger, but friends, our role is to share the gospel of Christ because it's man's only hope. And we as Christians should desire more that they come to Christ than that they die and bear the wrath of God.
We, we should desire it because it's, it's God's desire. God's desire of will is that not any man would perish, but all would come to know him. That's his desire. And though that's not necessarily the decree of God, but that's our desire as well, that we would want every single person on this earth to come to Christ. But if they reject Christ, God's still worthy of all glory, even in his wrath. He's going to get glory regardless. So, so listen, I just want to ask, when it comes to these things that we're guarding against, how's it going with you? Have you known any of this hatred and persecution that we're talking about going on in this, your life? Or is your Christian life going along quite smoothly? Uh, J.C. Ryle reminds us this wonderful quote, and I would love for you just to consider this. We'll probably post this tomorrow because I love it. He says, mere churchmanship and outward confession are a cheap religion, of course, and cost a man nothing. But real, vital Christianity will always bring with it a cross. One thing to keep in mind in our denial of Jesus, it doesn't necessarily have to be something we do with our mouths. It can be something we deny him in the manner in which we live. So if we're closet Christians, friends, that's a form of denial. Remember, we're supposed to be witnesses of God's work in our lives. We are not to be a lamp hidden under a bushel or a basket. We are to be a people who do good works openly that they may glorify our Father who is in heaven. And at the same time, just because we're being persecuted doesn't necessarily mean the Lord's pleased with us. There are times where we bring persecution upon ourselves for being foolish and obnoxious. <laughs> and so I want to leave you with this. Friends, the only life we can ever live that's pleasing to the Lord is a life in which we're constantly looking to God for the grace to live our lives following the way of our Savior. A life that demonstrates humility and love, grace and mercy, holiness and justice, goodness and truth. A life in which Jesus is truly known to live in and through us. That is a life we ought to strive to live because that's a life that pleases the Lord. My prayer is that he grant us the grace to live in this life, even now, this very moment. Amen. Please join your hearts with me in prayer. Father, we've considered wonderful things from your word. Lord, even hard things, difficult things. Lord, we uh, trust you with the truth that you've given us. Lord, that we know and believe you're using the truth preached and proclaimed for your word to bring us into Christ-likeness. Lord, I pray, Lord, as, as you stirred my heart this week to ask me what it's really cost me to follow Jesus, Lord, that if, if persecution came tomorrow and it's illegal in this country to worship the Lord, I pray that everyone in here would have enough evidence to be declared guilty of being a Christian. Lord, help us guard against self-righteousness here. Help us guard against self-victimization and against bitterness as we understand what our role is in life. And Lord, we are to live lives that are pleasing unto you. Lives filled with grace and mercy. So Father, we would be gospel bearers. We would be gospel sharers. And Lord, we be ones who have the tools of change in our hands and our hearts and our mouths. Father, declare to the nations your goodness and truth. Lord, as we come to our time and reflection of worship, we pray that as we sing, you would remind us of your goodness, your faith, and your justice. And Lord, our hearts would be encouraged. We pray all this in Jesus' name.